my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to turn our attention back this morning to this uh, biography of Jesus written by um, John Mark. I'll remind you, if you were here last week, you, you heard this already, but uh, Mark is believed to be the oldest biography in the, in the New Testament about the life of Jesus. It's also the shortest one. Mark's uh, good news, his good news biography uh, is shorter because it doesn't have a lot of the teaching discourses of Jesus. In fact, there's only four parables, for instance, mentioned in the gospel and the good news of Mark. Uh, but there's 19 miracles of Jesus recorded in, in successive uh, fashion. Most people say that Mark was trying to give us a biography of what Jesus did, not so much what he taught. So what he did and who he was through what he did. At the beginning of Mark, as we began last week, we saw that right at the beginning, Mark wants us to know that this good news, in fact, he called, the first line of his biography is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, which means the same thing as the word we were singing a lot, Christ. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. They both mean anointed king. That's what they mean in English. So Mark begins and he says, this is the good news about Jesus, the anointed king who is the son of God. And he told us last week that this good news of Jesus was planned by God. It wasn't an afterthought. It was announced by John the baptizer. It was confirmed by God at Jesus' baptism. It was resisted by Satan from the very beginning. And finally, this good news of the kingdom of God was launched by Jesus himself. He said, the long expected king is here and the kingdom has come and is now beginning. So today we want to continue. And what Mark's going to do, I think, in the next few verses is he's going to give us several characteristics of the king. I'm going to take a little bit different approach to what Mark reveals. And I'm going to, I want to show you some characteristics of Jesus from these events that Mark records uh, about him. And my goal this morning, my goal is to inspire you I want to, I believe this was Mark's goal in writing this biography. He wanted to inspire you and me to follow Jesus. He wanted to inspire all of us to love Jesus and want to be a part of his kingdom. And, and so that's going to be my challenge today. I, I'm going to, I want to inspire you to follow Jesus. But more than that, I, I also, for those of us that follow Jesus, I want to offer you some great encouragement and some further challenge as a follower of Jesus. So hopefully we'll do all of that in these next verses from the gospel or the good news of Mark. So here we go. In his kingdom, here's what Mark wants you to know about Jesus. Jesus uses ordinary people. Jesus uses people like you and me. So Mark begins in verse 16, or continues in verse 16, and he says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and were in their boat, bending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now you would think that since Jesus is launching this high-powered kingdom of God, that he would want to choose the creme de la creme. 
He'd want to choose the best of the best, right? And I'm not trying to disparage these disciples at all, but I do want you to understand that he picked ordinary blokes like you and me. He did not pick the creme de la creme. He did not pick the guys who had surfaced to the top because they were smarter than anyone else and they knew the Torah or they knew the Jewish law better than anyone else. They were not the smartest. They were just the average. They were not the wisest. They were just average. Now, the Apostle Paul would, would talk about this very thing in one of his letters. So Paul, this, this great uh, founder, if you would, or this great proponent of the kingdom of God, he would write much of what we find in the New Testament, but to a church in Corinth, this is what he wrote. He said, take, and this is chapter 1, verse 26, if you're writing it down, but he says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I'm reading it from a paraphrase. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. It's obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chooses the nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, a fresh start, it comes from God by the way of Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Here, here's what the culture of that day said. Rabbis picked the brightest, the, the, the guys that were the somebodies. Jesus chose the average people. And I think, I think Paul's probably right. I think in part he chose the average people because he was trying to say to the world, you don't have to be the top here and you have nothing to brag in in being a part of my kingdom and, and so i think jesus is trying to tell us that you don't have to be somebody to be a part of god's kingdom you can be a nobody you can be like you and me and i don't mean to disparage us and i'm not trying to speak poorly of us right but we're not all winston churchills or or president biden's or the new prime minister of England, right? Mrs. Tuff, I think her name is. You know, we, uh, none of, we, we're not, all of us are not people like that. God wants to, you to know that no matter who you are, God can use you. And in fact, he wants to use you. Can I tell you this? Jesus picked those men for that particular job. And by the way, somebody, somebody asked me this morning, this is not their first encounter with these men, all right? Mark doesn't reveal, but this is not their first encounter with these men. But he picks these men for a special job. And that special job that they're going to have is they're going to be for the next three years walking with Jesus everywhere he goes, learning from him, passing on the things that he's teaching. So he's called them for this specific job. But I want to tell you something. God wants to call all of us to do something. God's got a job, a ministry, a service area. He's got something for all of us to do, a part for all of us to play in his wonderful kingdom. And did you know this Jesus that initiates you, really, you recognize that in the story, right? It's not like the guys say, can we follow you? Now, they have made overtures towards Jesus. Andrew, one of the ones that Jesus calls here, he follows Jesus until Jesus, I guess, maybe gets annoyed and turned around and says, can I help you? And he doesn't know what to say. And he goes, oh, where are you living? Or where are you going? And, and Jesus will come and follow me. So, but Jesus takes the initiative here. He's inviting them to come and, and follow him. And I want to say something to you all this morning. Jesus is taking the initiative now, and he's asking all of us, come and will you come and follow me? Will you come and, and be one of my learners, one of my disciples? God, the creator, the God who loves us, I mean, 
he is looking for ordinary people like us. And he's asking you to follow him. And so this morning, I, I kind of want to just put the question out there for you on this ordinary day. Like that was an ordinary day and they were ordinary men. And you and I are ordinary people. Jesus wants to know, will you come and follow me? Now, maybe, maybe you're like the disciples and you know a little bit about Jesus. I'm telling you, he's offering and asking, will you come and follow me? Maybe you don't know anything about him. I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, he wants you to be a part of this kingdom and he's inviting you and he wants ordinary people like us. You don't have to be something special. Here's the second characteristic that I think Mark wants us to recognize is that Jesus, when he calls us ordinary people, he's calling us to different priorities. So if you look at verse 17 embedded in what I've already read, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So commensurate, that means correspondingly or going along with his call for them to follow him. He's also calling them to reorient their priorities, to change their priorities, to, to make their priorities not be about fishing anymore. He says, hey, guys, I know you've been vocational fishers, fishermen all your lives. But hey, guess what? From here on, I'm calling you. I want you to follow me, and I want you to change your priority. And I don't want you to be going after fish anymore. I want you to come with me and fish for, and fish for men. Jesus is calling us to follow him. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I don't think that Jesus is calling all of us to leave our vocations and do a different vocation. In fact, uh, I think it was Paul in another place. He says, however, however you began to follow Jesus, stay in that vocation. Don't change right away. Maybe you need to change at some point, but when you begin to follow Jesus, stay where you are in that vocation. But I am telling you this, Jesus is calling you to reorient your priorities. If you're going to follow him, I, I, he's, not, he's not asking you, when he asks you to follow him as an ordinary person and be a part of his kingdom, he's asking you to change the priorities of your life. Might mean not change your vocation, but change your priorities. And, and the priority that he wants you to embrace, and I think it's inculcated, found in this call for them to be fishers of men, is that we are to live for his kingdom. In other words, the priorities of my life need to become his kingdom. He's calling me to extend his kingdom. He's calling me to love his kingdom. He's calling men and women to help other men and women become followers of this king in this kingdom. Maybe you don't know this, but one of the last things that Jesus said before he returned to heaven, he gathered his disciples, these guys, these same men, and he said, hey guys, here's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples of all the peoples of the world. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So by extension, I do believe that is a priority that he expects of all of us. That we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. Beginning with the people right here around us, beside us. I think that should be our priority. Now there's such a temptation. Listen, isn't this true? There's such a temptation in our lives to prioritize our happiness. Wouldn't you agree with that? Would you agree with that? Such a temptation, and, and I'm not trying to say that God wants you to be unhappy. That's not what I'm saying. But I am trying to say that that becomes the priority, especially for us as Westerners, and maybe especially for us as Americans, happiness becomes the end game for us. It's the, it's the top of the pyramid as far as our priorities are concerned. I need to be happy, and I need to do what I want to do to be happy. Our desires become our priority. Our lives become our priorities. Our children become our priorities. Our grandchildren become our priorities because 
hey, they, those things are all wrapped up in my, in my happiness. But listen to our king. This is what he told us. He said, seek first my kingdom and everything else is going to be added to you. Seek, seek first my kingdom and everything else in, my, in, in his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, the temptation, I think, for us is that Jesus is promising us sort of like with Aladdin's lamp, right? You know, seek first the kingdom. It's like rubbing the lamp and everything you want in this life is going to come your way. I, I don't see that reflected in scripture. I don't see that reflected anecdotally in my, in my life. Um, that, that, that's, that that's what happens. Um, for instance, you know, here's a, um, well, I'm getting hit of myself. I don't see that reflected in scripture. I don't really see that reflected in anecdotally in my life that everything that I want gets added to me because I follow Jesus. Do you? Do you see that in the scripture or in life in real? When we don't see it, right? Terrible things happen to us and things we pray against still happen to us. But I want to say this. I am absolutely confident, very, very confident that Jesus is going to be faithful to that promise. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. The question is, are they going to be added now, or are they going to be added at the realization of his kingdom? The kingdom of Jesus has already begun. We're part of it, everybody. The kingdom has already begun, and we're in the kingdom, and we're part of the kingdom. You know, we, we are sons of the king and daughters of the king, and, and our priorities are his kingdom. But the realization of his kingdom will take place when Jesus comes again. And when he comes again, his realize he will rule over all the earth, and he's going to fix all these things. And all these things that he's promising us will be ours. So I want to ask you this before I move on. And I want you to not answer out loud, but I do want you to just address it in your heart. What are the priorities of your life? If you're honest with yourself, and be honest with yourself because it's just God and you, what, what is the priority? Of, where do you spend your time and your money and your energies? What is the priority of your life? Is it the kingdom or is it your happiness? Again, I'm not trying to say God doesn't want you to ha be happy. I'm saying seek first his kingdom and happiness will come. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not even in this life, but happiness will come. So seek first his kingdom, and all of these things will be added unto you. I urge you to become fishers of men, to prioritize the extension of his kingdom. Let's move on. Here's the third. There's five of them, just in case you're wondering. Oh, it's in your notes. By the way, on the back of your bulletin is a place for you to kind of follow along with the outline. All right, in his kingdom, here's the third thing I think Mark wants us to see about Jesus. Jesus' words become our authority. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, that would be the people that were listening to him, were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So from the very beginning, the people noticed something about Jesus when he taught. They said, wow, you're different. When you teach, I mean, it just reeks of authority. You teach with authority. You walk with authority. I, I'm assuming he carried himself with some authority. And, and I've noticed... Uh, or I, I've wondered, not noticed, I've wondered what it is about Jesus that made them say that. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered that? What was it about Jesus that made them say, you're different from all the other teachers. You teach with authority. What, what was that? And it, was it something in his voice or his presentation or maybe what he was teaching? I did think about this. You remember Jesus said stuff like this. Remember he said, uh, you've heard it say, and then he'd quote the Old Testament. And then he'd say, but I say. And he would take that Old Testament teaching and he would not deny it. He would just make it even more pointed and even more strong. 
uh, in his words, right? So maybe that was the kind of thing that, that caused the people to perceive uh, this authority. Maybe it was the Spirit of God just upon Jesus when he taught that the people, the Spirit just gave authority to his words. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher, and I want to teach with authority. I tell you, I do. And one of the things I've noticed is that I can teach with authority when I'm confident that I'm teaching what Jesus said. When I'm teaching something that has various opinions as to what Jesus meant, I tell you, I have much less authority when teaching that. I, I, I tell you, I say, hey, it could be this, it could be that, you know. Uh, but, but, but I'm pretty confident there's an authority that I, that I sense because I feel like I'm teaching what Jesus wants people to hear and wants them to know. So here's my point. Our authority becomes the words and the will of Jesus. That's our authority. Our authority in the kingdom are the words of Jesus, his teaching, his convictions. Can I, can I be honest with you? There are many things in the Old Testament I don't understand. And there are many things in the Old Testament that I struggle with. I, I, when I say I struggle with them, I'm like, wow, God, did you really say that? But I want to tell you something. I believe the Old Testament to be the word of God. You know why? I believe it because Jesus believed it. I mean, that's how Jesus taught it, that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And so though I struggle with some of those things, I got Jesus affirming the Old Testament, and Jesus is my authority. His words are my authority in His kingdom. So therefore, I hold to the Old Testament to be the Word of God, because that's what Jesus said about it. He is my authority. His words become my authority. Jesus and His Word is the authority of the kingdom. And I say is and not are because Jesus and his word are not two distinct things. They're one. Jesus and his word are one. And Jesus and his word is our authority. And it's what he said, not what we think or what we make him want to say to be true. There's a lot of folks who say they follow Jesus in our culture today that tell us that the Bible is, is not condemning homosexuality as being morally wrong. That homosexuality is okay. That, that heterosexuality apart from marriage, that sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend is okay. And our culture says, see, the Bible tells us that. And, and they point to the scripture and they seek to make a case from the Bible. I, I personally believe the Bible is really, really clear about both of those things, right? As both being morally wrong. Here's my point. It's not what I make the Bible to say. It's what does the Bible actually say? And being truthful to that. So when Paul says to Timothy, he says, I encourage you. And remember, he was like his son in the faith. He said, study, Timothy, to show yourself approved, correctly teaching the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is our authority, because the words of Jesus are our authority in his kingdom. We don't have any authority in the kingdom of Jesus other than the words of Jesus. So everybody, love your Bibles. Study your Bibles. Find the authority of Jesus in your Bible and seek to live it out. And I know we don't live it out perfectly. I know we fall and stumble, and I know we, we fall into the ruts of sin. I get all that, but let's, let's hold to where our authority is. It's the Scripture. It is the Scripture is our authority. In his kingdom, number four, Jesus' power can change our life. I think this is what Mark wants to highlight. The power of Jesus changes our lives. So as our king, Jesus wields this authority and this power, and he changes our lives. It reminds me, this isn't in this story right now. This isn't this story right now, but you remember the story maybe. Jesus is teaching, and he's in his house, and there's so many people that, I mean, the crowds are just all around the door. Nobody can get in because nobody's going to let you 
come past them to get up front, you know, and always let your butt in line. And so there's these guys with this paralytic, you know the story, and they can't get in. So they go around to the back of the house, put a ladder, get on the roof, dig through the roof, and they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And when they do, Jesus looks at him and he says, man, your sins are forgiven. And everybody murmurs, all the religious people murmur, and they say, how can he do that? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. And he knows what they're murmuring, and so he says out loud, Jesus does, he says, let me ask you, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? And the answer is is rhetorically obvious, it is, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no proof of it, right? I can say, your sins are forgiven, but if they are, they aren't. There's no proof of that. But if you're a paralyzed man, and I say, get up and walk, Either you're going to get up and walk or you're not, and everybody's going to see it. So he says, so that you might know that I have the authority. I, 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 would, I wish he'd have used the word power there. So you might know that I have the power to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And his power was evident there. Well, in this story that Mark is telling, in this biography of Jesus, he highlights the power of Jesus in a synagogue situation. He says in verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, silent, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out in a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they, they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people experienced the authority of Jesus in his teaching, and they experienced the power of Jesus in what he did that day by healing that man of whatever an unclean spirit was. And that's not my point. I don't believe that's necessarily Mark's point here. Jesus had the power then, and he has the power today to change our lives. I'm going to say that again. Jesus has the power to change our lives. Nothing has changed except Jesus is in heaven and, and, and we are here. So what about this power of Jesus? What is, his, what is our relationship to the power of Jesus today? That The power of Jesus that healed the sick, restored withered limbs on people, gave blind people their sight back, raised the dead. What's our relationship to that power? So here's a few verses from the New Testament. Here's some things that... that uh, that we can say about the power of Jesus. Here's, here's Jesus himself. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, that's Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Of course, he goes on to say, and you'll use that power to be my witnesses throughout the, all, of, uh, all of the world. In Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Peter says this about the power of God in his second letter. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So God's power is at work, that was at work in Jesus has in some ways been given or placed in us or works in us in some ways. Paul, here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said, the kingdom of God is not just in talk, but it's in living by God's power. To the Ephesian Christians, Paul said this, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. In both cases, Paul's asserting that the power of God is at work in our lives. 
So here's where it's going to get difficult. So kind of follow with me for just a moment. Some understand this to mean that the power of God to do anything and everything that he did physically when he's here is available to us and it's an operation in our life right now. Everything's available to us all the time. If we pronounce or pray something in the power of God and it doesn't come to pass, then it's because something's wrong with us. We didn't have enough faith or, we, or, we, or there was sin in our lives. But if it doesn't come to pass when we proclaim something through the power of God, then it's, it's on us. Now, I actually don't see that reflected in Scripture. Paul prayed for himself three times, get rid of this thorn, and it didn't happen. James is martyred. And I, and I point James's martyrdom not, not because it says anything about the power of God, but I guarantee you our brothers and sisters were praying for James to be released, and he was not released, and he was killed. And so the power of God wasn't, didn't operate then. Peter was in prison. They were praying for him to be released, and the power of God did release him. Remember, it was a miraculous thing. But when Peter shows at the, up at the place where they're praying, they don't believe it's Peter because they can't believe that God answered their prayer. Meaning what I think that means is they weren't used to God exercising his power like that to, to do that. So, and I don't see it reflected in actual life either. I have prayed for people and we have prayed for people and they have been delivered immediately and instantaneously. And we have prayed for others and they have not been delivered and they continue to suffer and they die. So anecdotally, I don't, I, don't, I don't see where the power of God is always available to me to, to do the things that Jesus always, always did. So um, how are we to understand the power of God at work in us? Well, let me talk about that for just a minute. I do believe that the power of God to work supernatural miracles is still in our lives. I mean, the power of God is still out there and God still intervenes in our lives with supernatural miracles. At times he does things that violate the laws of nature that he set up. He, he intervenes in our history and he changes the outcome of how things might have been had he not changed them. I still believe God does those things. But here's, here's something that I've embraced and you know, I hope I'm not offending anyone, but we call them miracles because they don't happen all that often. Because God doesn't choose all that often to break the natural laws that he set up. He does. And so we should pray and we should ask and we should seek the Lord. But I want you to know that I just don't think it's an all the, kind of time, all the, all the time thing with the power of God. So what do, what can we hold on to with the power of God? Well, let's go back to, to Peter's words, because I, I think Peter's words really reflect something that I believe, though anecdotally it's hard, and I, and I haven't necessarily proved it true in my life, but, but here's what Peter says. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. God has given me everything, by his divine power, he's given me everything I need to live a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him. So here's what I think the power of God is always true to in my life. God's power is, at, is always available in my life to change me, to change me, to make me like him. His power may not always heal my withered arm. His power may not always fix my, my retina that's become detached and I'm blind. His power may not do, his power can do those things. I believe his power still does those things. I think we should still pray for those things. 
But here's a promise I think he's making. He has made this promise to us that his power is constantly available in my life to change me and to make me like Jesus, to help me live above the fray of my sinful nature, to help me live above the power of sin in my life. And so his power is at work in me to root out the bitterness in my life. Listen, if you've got a root of bitterness in your life, the power of God can root it out. If you're addicted to sexual sin, the power of God can root that out and can get rid of it and can help you live sexually pure. His power, if you're a greedy, if you're an angry person and anger's always erupting out of you and you can't seem to stop it, listen, the power of God, I believe anyway, is available to us to defeat that. To absolutely defeat that. Now, anecdotally, is, is it hard to defeat these roots of bitterness and, and roots of anger and roots of lust and all those things? Is it hard to defeat those things in our life? Absolutely, it is. But I'm telling you, the power of... I, I believe the Bible makes this the, the end game, being like Jesus. And the power of God is available in my life to change me. At times, it's available to heal me and to restore me completely, to, to, to violate the laws of nature that God has set up. But I'm telling you, I think the power of God is in my life to lead me to be like Jesus, to overcome sin in my life. So Romans 8 says, God has predestined us uh, to this end, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so that means you can overcome your sin. You don't have to let it control you. The power of, is the power of God changing you? Is it transforming you? You know, uh, are you different today than you were a year ago? Are you, are you Nancy, are you different today? You are, yes, you are, dear. Yes, you are. The power of God is changing us. And it's not, listen, the power of God to change us, it's, it's not, I don't find it to be instantaneous, do you? The change that the power of God works in my life is day after day, moment after moment, little by little, he changes me. He, he helps me see where I need to fix it. And when I stumble, he picks me up and says, keep on going, right? And, and so it's gradual. Another thing about the power of God in my life is it's not unilateral. I mean, yes, God can deliver us. Like if you're addicted to alcohol, God can come in and unilaterally by his power. This is, this is a supernatural thing, I think. He can touch you and, and get rid of that alcoholism instantaneously. But for so many people, it doesn't work that way. It's not instantaneous. They fight it and they fight it. But I'm telling you, the power of God is at work in our lives to free us from all those kinds of things that... that result in the destruction of our family, not the flourishing of our family. They result in the, in the, in the ruin of the kingdom of God or the, the belittling of the kingdom of God rather than the lifting up of the kingdom of God and elevating our king. Paul says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. I think the power of God available in me is, is set loose in my life when I'm renewing my mind. I told you this a few weeks ago, and it's changed my life. I've really been living by it, and, and I, think, I think Keith Hubble would tell you even more so than me. He's, he's been trying to live it. Remember we talked about how the brain creates these paths in our, in our, in our minds that tend to make us want to fall into sin. Remember this? I mean, this is a neurological truth. And so you've got these weaknesses in your mind. If you've been engaging in sin, the key to destroying those ruts that your brain creates, and it breaks those connections, when I renew my mind. 
So, man, I've been renewing my mind all the time. I've been telling, I've been telling myself new things about me. And I'm telling you, I feel like it's making a difference in my life in one, in, in, in finding the power of God being exercised in my life. So I tell you folks, listen, the power of God is available to us. It's not a unilateral thing. It's God works by his power as we submit ourselves to him, renew our minds. So here I'd like to offer a prayer, a suggested prayer. And I didn't write it down anywhere. So I'm not asking you to pray this prayer as I've, write, I've written it, but pray something like this every day. God, thank you for giving me power to change, to be like Jesus. Just put it in your own words. God, thank you for giving me power to change, to be like Jesus. As I give myself to apply your word to my life, I thank you, I praise you for enabling me by your power to be different, to be a different man, a different woman. May your power be at work in me. It's up there, but it's not written down for you. But so don't, don't even copy it. Just, just pray that kind of prayer. God, thank you for being at work in my life. Now change me, Lord, by your power. And finally, this morning in his kingdom, I think Mark wants us to see that, that Jesus, our king, his care extends to all of us. His care extends to every single one of us. Ann and I just finished watching Downton Abbey for the second time. Best show in the world. If you've never seen it, You've missed something. It's got a lot of stuff that I wouldn't recommend. I get it. I shouldn't recommend the show because it has bad stuff in it, okay? But uh, I've loved Downton Abbey. It's my favorite show. But if you haven't seen Downton Abbey, it's about the aristocracy in England at the turn of the 20th century. And there's such a difference in, in Downton Abbey. It's a big manor house. And there's such a difference in, in between the upstairs where the aristocracy lives and the downstairs where the servants live. And in Downton Abbey, they, uh, they basically are showing you over a period of like 30 years just how the people upstairs care for the people downstairs. Now, the people downstairs care for the people upstairs. And Downton Abbey is also showing you that over that period of 1890 to about, about uh, 1930, how everything was changing and that separation between the aristocracy and other folks was, was breaking down. Uh, so it was showing all of that. In the biography of Jesus, we learn that the aristocracy of upstairs, the aristocracy of upstairs, and not just any aristocracy, but the aristocracy of the sovereign of all sovereigns and the king of all kings, he leaves the upstairs and he comes to the downstairs. And he comes to the downstairs. And like in Downton Abbey, if you watch Downton Abbey, the upstairs will come down and they'll celebrate with them or say something nice to them. But in life, the true sovereign came downstairs to be one of the servants. And he did that because he cared, because he loved them. He lowered himself. The God of the universe lowered himself and became a servant. And so we read in 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Man, we see the care of Jesus for the family and his friends. I think it's so insightful that after synagogue, seems like after synagogue anyway, Jesus went home to hang out with friends. He didn't go to his home. 
And James, this wasn't James and John's home. This was, this was Simon's home, evidently. And, uh, you know, I wonder what would happen if, if we cared for people like they, like, you know, they, they came home after lunch and they all sat around after lunch and they had a meal together. I wonder if Simon's wife had the crock pot on during synagogue so that they could invite Jesus and the rest of the disciples to come and hang out after lunch, right? Or at lunch with them, okay? Here's, here's my point. Jesus, Jesus cared about folks and he, he loved them and he just loved to hang out with them. Don't forget, this is the God of the universe from upstairs. He's now come downstairs to live with them and to care for them, to heal uh, his mother. Jesus loved his disciples and, and I imagine in his humanity, I might be wrong, but this is Jimmy's imagination. I imagine that in his humanity, Jesus loved his disciples more and more with each passing day. Think about it for a moment. I mean, he's getting to know them. He's hanging out with them. I mean, I mean, we love people that we spend more and more time with, right? We get to love them more and more and more. I mean, I love you more today than the day that I first met you when you came and sang as a little boy at our church, Micah, right? Because of all these 20 or 30 years of being, doing life together. Jesus would love them more and more. And this is what he would say to them on the last night before his death. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I'm not calling you servants anymore because I've left the upstairs and come downstairs and now you're my friends. I call you my friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. The supreme sovereign from the upstairs says to the servants downstairs, you're my friends and I'm one of you. I love you. On the night, later that night, uh, he would say, I have loved you. Now you love one another. Jesus cares for us in his kingdom. He cares for us in his kingdom. And I want to ask you, I guess it's a rhetorical question, but do you know that really in your heart? That God actually cares for you and loves you personally and, and knows you and he, he cares for you? This is a rhetorical question. How do we feel that love of God when the pain of living is crushing us right now? I inserted that because I'm your friend. I'm your friend, and I know a lot of you. And right now, I know some of you are bleeding, and you're being crushed under the weight of life. And I get that. So hold that thought, and I'm going to come back to it. Here's, a, here's another thought that, uh, that I think we find in the text. And it's not just that Jesus cares about, it's not that Jesus lowered himself to come down and care for his friends and those who are already in the kingdom. Jesus cares and serves anyone and everyone who seeks after him. Look at what happens next, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The point I want you to notice is, you know, you see what Jesus did, right? But the point I want you to know is everybody came to him 
It says the whole city was gathered at his door. I don't think that's true. I think that's one of those exaggerations. Man, everybody in the world was there. You know, I think that's what he's saying. Lots and lots of people were there to be healed by Jesus. Remember, his fame had spread from the synagogue. Everybody had come to see him. But here's the thing. He stayed there, evidently, until there wasn't any more. He evidently dealt with and cared about all of these people who weren't in his kingdom yet, but were seeking his help. It's, it's such a blessing to me to know that my king, the one who loves me, he loves you. And he doesn't just love me and you, he loves Putin. And he loves, he, he loves all these people that we despise. I mean, he has a genuine desire for them to know him and for them to be redeemed. I mean, he loves and cares, that's my understanding anyway, that he cares for them. And Jesus in this story, Mark tells us he helped everyone. He healed them and he delivered them. And Jesus tells us in his kingdom, he says, guys, listen, I know it's hard, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love all those people that you despise and can't stand. I want you to love those people. And, and because, remember, I'm the guy that left upstairs to come downstairs. Jesus, our king, in his newly inaugurated kingdom, came serving rather than being served. He came serving rather than trying to find servants to add to his downstairs. So in, in Matthew 28, 20, 28, Matthew says, or Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. On the night before his death, he washed his disciples' feet, and he said, Hey, there you go. You got, you got the example. Do what I did. To the, to the disciples, when they're arguing over who's the greatest, he said, man, if you want to be the greatest, be the greatest servant. Jesus was the wisest man to ever live. By virtue of his service, he was the greatest servant, and he cared for all of us. He cared for you and me in the kingdom, and he cared for those not yet in the kingdom and those that would be seeking him. So let me go back to my question. How can I feel that God loves me and God cares for me when the pain of my life is crushing me and I can't get out from under it. How, how, how can I believe that God loves me? And um, this is what helps me. It may not help you, but this, this is the only answer I can give you. Yahweh, that's the name of the creator God, right? God chose to crush Jesus. And what I mean by that is he chose to crush himself because remember, God is one ontological being, but he's three distinct persons. He chose to crush himself, Jesus, in order to serve us. And, and uh, I don't believe that God is responsible for the moral evil in this world. I don't believe that God is responsible for the natural evil in this world. By that, I mean directly causing it. I don't believe that God is causing all that we go through or decreeing what we go through, all this pain. I don't think he's decreeing or causing it. I don't think he's bringing, I don't think he has some kind of ulterior purpose behind all this stuff. And so he's bringing it on us for those ulterior purposes. What I do believe is that God entered the world with its evil and pain to serve us. And he entered this world to take upon himself that crushing that we all endure or all go through. And he did it so that he could redeem it. He experienced alongside us the pain of betrayal the pain of suffering, the pain of death. And through it all, he did that so he could redeem this world of its evil and brokenness. That's what Jesus did. So he, he walks with me in my suffering. So again, this may not help you. And I know some of you are being crushed really, really hard. I know some of you are being crushed really, really hard. And I wish I could say, I wish I could take it. And I wish I could say, here's the reason for it. 
I don't have a reason for it. I don't know. There's no answer for it. But this, or, there is this. If what we believe is true, and it is true, if the Bible is our authority, and it is our authority, and the words of Jesus are true, then Jesus entered into our suffering, and he was crushed alongside us so that he could redeem us from that crushing. And here's what he promises, and this you know I can say. He will walk with you. He will walk with you. He will never leave you. He will be right there. He, he feels your pain. He hurts with your pain. And he bleeds with you. And he's being crushed again with you. You say, well, why doesn't he stop it? He's omnipotent. And he's all good. I mean, we'll ask him that question one day. God, why is the world the way it is? Why do, you know, we could, we could, we could offer answers like, Man, this is how we can, this is how we know love. You know, there's all kinds of answers we can offer, but they're all unsatisfactory, right? But here's what I'm telling you. Jesus is going to walk with you and he will never leave you. And he will be there with you through it all. This king we follow has been where we are. He's walked where we are. He's experienced the pain where, that we have and he's never, ever, ever going to leave us in the midst of us. So in his kingdom, Jesus uses ordinary people like you and me. And Jesus calls us to be to, to embrace different priorities in his life. I mean, he's not just calling you to put your name on the kingdom roll, you know, the, the citizen registry. He's actually calling you to a different priority. And Jesus' words become our authority in this life. And his power is available to change our lives. And Jesus' care extends to all of us. So this is the opportunity where I want you to, I'd like to ask you to bow your head you know, I know that's what we do in church a lot, but would you just bow your head? And the purpose for that is so it's just you and God. And, um, and I, just, I just want to extend an invitation from Jesus for you to become a part of his kingdom. And so I want to invite you today to, to raise your metaphorical hand. I'm not even asking you to raise your hand. Um, but I am saying, would you raise your metaphorical hand and say, I want to be a part of this kingdom. I want to follow this king. I want this king to be my king. I want to, you know, we just saw Charles become king. I don't know if you've watched the news. I mean, you've, if you've watched, I'm sure all of us have seen some of it. But the people of England are just like, hail to the king. And they're bowing down to the king and they love their king. I'm telling you, the king of all kings, the sovereign of all sovereigns is inviting you to own him as your king. And I'm just asking you this morning, would you say, I want, I want him to be my king. I want, to follow, I want to be a part of his kingdom forever. I want, to follow, I want to be redeemed by his kingdom. I want to be a part of it forever. So I'm giving you, on behalf of Jesus, the king, an opportunity to join his kingdom. You say, Jimmy, how do I do that? Man, just in your heart, say, King Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be one of, I want to be one of your subjects. I want to bow my knee to you. So maybe that's where you need to begin this, this morning. Well, you got your head bowed. That's, that's where you need to begin. For maybe others of us that, that have already following Jesus, you know, maybe, maybe what we need to hear this morning is the thing about our priorities, that our priorities need to change. And we need to prioritize his kingdom over our happiness. Lord willing, we'll still be happy. Lord willing, it'll still, we'll still have, it'll still be good. But then there's going to be times where you're going to be crushed but you're still going to say, Lord, it's your kingdom. It's your kingdom that I want.
Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to pastorjimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.